you, Jane. A great opportunity for us to serve. If that's interesting to you, reach out to Jane. If you need her contact info or more information on this, you can reach out to me too as I work with the outreach committee. We're excited about this. Why don't we stand for God's word this morning from Mark chapter 13. We're going to need to pray before we dig into this difficult text today. So let's pray and prepare ourselves for God's word. Lord, we believe that you are indeed speaking to us today, even through a difficult word, a a word that's hard to understand, maybe even hard to hear. We trust in you, Lord. So would you speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our lives, so that we can truly hear from you, we ask in your name. Amen. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings? Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. While Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will the sign of all these things be? What would be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware. For they will hand you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you're going to say. But say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set upon it, where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one that is in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not be winter. For in those days there will be suffering, such as not, has not been from the beginning of creation that God created un, until now. No, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he, choose, uh, whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I've already told you everything. But in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heaven. 
the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Take a deep breath and have a seat. Tough text today. This is part of the gift of going through a gospel is that we don't duck tough texts. We work through them. So let's work through that together today. I know that you've heard the question like I have, is this the end? For years, centuries really, people have had a a fascination with the end of the world. Maybe no group more so than Protestant Christians like us in the last century. For the last hundred years, I bet there's been more ink that's been spilt on the end times than in all of history prior. A desire to understand when Jesus is coming back, when the end of the world is going to come, and how we can prepare for it so that we're not caught off guard. This year of COVID has certainly contributed to this. Um, I had a letter left in my box last April. Don't know who gave it to me. It was a biblical exposition of, of why this particular global pandemic was the fulfillment of all of these scriptures that promised the apocalypse and the rapture and the return of Jesus. It, it said that this COVID was the pestilence that's spoken of in scripture that's going to signal the final judgment of Jesus. And it quoted Mark 13, our text from today, in particular mentioning persecution and suffering that is to come. I did a quick Google search this week just for fun on this topic and found many similar articles, YouTube videos and the like, mostly focused on on COVID being sort of a portent of the end of everything. Now, before I tell you why you should not be putting much stock in this or giving it authority over your lives like we talked about last week, I want to recognize why these things exist in the first place. And this is not just to be charitable. I think it's true. These resources exist, and maybe you've been sucked into them too and and been interested in them, because we want to try and make sense of the world around us, and particularly the suffering of this world. Particularly the suffering of this world. If, If we understood God's role in the suffering of this world, that it really meant something, that it was leading to something better, it would be easier to cope, right, if there was a reason for this all. And charitably, I think most Christians are drawn to the idea of Christ returning and making all things right because God created that in us. There's a peace in us that longs for that. That is a healthy longing. If you feel that in your lives, that is a healthy longing. I found myself on my knees this week in my office saying, come Lord Jesus, as I was reading about these conflicts in, in, in the world, particularly in Myanmar. If you don't know about that, read about it. Pray for Myanmar. I want an end to those conflicts. I want an end to, to racism and hatred and, 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 and the, just the hatred that we see so prevalently, particularly in our country towards our African-American and Asian-American brothers and sisters, which I know has been brought to the forefront this week. I want an end to cancer, as that has hit home in my life with my dad's diagnosis in the last couple of weeks. I want an end to broken marriages and and addictions and abuse. I want an end to those things. We are so messed up and lost as a human race. And it's totally appropriate for our hearts to cry out and say, come, Lord Jesus, come now, make things right. Fascination with how it's going to end and signs of Jesus' return are natural. There's a part of us that longs for that. But I need to tell you this morning that while those feelings are natural, They are seldom biblical in the way that we talk about them. As I was reading through those articles, those videos, I felt felt convicted to let you know that they almost always quote scripture and almost always interpret it wrong. (laughs) 
I feel convicted to respond to you by telling you this morning that I don't think recent floods and earthquakes of the last years are the ones that are spoken about in Mark 13. I don't think that the COVID pandemic is the 70 weeks of trial that's referred to in the book of Daniel. I don't think that the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians is actually a person who's walking around the earth right now who's going to bring about the end of things. I understand the questions about the efficacy of masks, but I don't think it's persecution to have to wear one. I understand the questions around vaccines, but I don't think it's the mark of, mark of the beast to take one. That's talked about in the book of Revelation. I share all those thoughts charitably and would be happy to talk about those, but for those of you who feel otherwise, please know that it's hard to do so and to hold the Bible in one hand and hold those convictions. Case in point, today's text, Mark 13. It's not about the end times. So if you want to take a, a, a sigh of relief, go, oh, okay, good. That's not what this text is actually about. As I stated last Sunday, last week's text and this week's text are primarily about the temple in Jerusalem. It's important for us to build a foundation here to understand what's going on in this text. The temple is a very, very important topic in the Bible. The very first temple was actually a temporary one. It would have looked something like this, this picture up here. Um, that's actually a, a recreation of the original tabernacle. When the Israelites took up residence in Jerusalem, they actually brought this. Under the conquest of Joshua, they brought this kind of mobile worship center to Mount Moriah. This was called the tabernacle. They had brought it all the way from Mount Sinai many years earlier. It was not until King Solomon in 557 B.C. that there was a permanent home of worship that was called the temple, a physical structure of the temple. And that was a wonder of the ancient world, uh, Solomon's temple. The Bible tells us that all the powers of the world came to see the grandeur of this place. That temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians when they carried the Israelites off into exile. A second temple was built on that spot and completed when the Israelites were allowed to return from exile. A man named Zerubbabel oversaw its construction in 515 B.C. And that temple was nearly destroyed 300 years later. So that the temple that Jesus visited was actually the third iteration of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was known as Herod's temple. It was Herod who, who renovated this dilapidated structure. And it was still under construction at the time of Jesus. You can actually go to the temple complex today. It's a place that you can visit in Jerusalem if you'd like to today. The Temple Mount currently contains two mosques, Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. That's that gold-domed, iconic building that, that uh, brings definition to the Jerusalem skyline. It was in this exact spot, you can see the definition of it even on this picture, that the temple stood in Jesus' day. Almost the exact same parameters, actually, of, of where the temple courts were. But it looked quite different. This is the best guess of what it would have looked like in the time of Jesus. If you go to the next one there, Caleb. Um, that's probably what it would have looked like. Pretty grand, right? As I said last week, the most amazing building, most uh, majestic building within many hundred miles in any direction. But the reason it was so grand is because is what it stood for, for the Israelites. If you trace the history of that place, like I did in just a couple minutes there, it's the place of God's presence. When the Israelites were following Moses out in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, God's presence went before them and it landed in this sort of place. That's why they built that tent. They built it around the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire to experience the presence of God. 
So, you have to remember that when Solomon built this permanent home and other iterations after it, way before Jesus, God does not have a human form before Jesus, right? Doesn't have a human voice. In fact, his name is so holy that you would be scared to say it because of what God might do to you. So to experience the presence of God was a really, really big deal. And that's why that tabernacle came to rest in Jerusalem and eventually made a permanent house for the presence of God. It was a place where people came to worship and pray and make animal sacrifices for atonement for sin and most of all to experience the presence of God. That's sort of the context of where we are today. And that's where our text begins, where these disciples are walking out of the temple courts and they say kind of this awkward thing to Jesus. They're like, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings? Kind of a leading comment, isn't it? After all that Jesus has done and taught in the temple, it seems as if the disciples want him to explain a little bit more exactly what he thinks about this place. What does it mean? This is when Jesus begins to talk about persecution and earthquakes and atrocities and false teachers and violence. And I'm utterly convinced that this passage is about the destruction of this building in Jerusalem, the temple, not the end of time. In this sense, those who use this passage to, to make a case for the way in which Jesus is going to return, what it's going to look like, the end of the world, do so kind of dangerously out of context. It's all too common for us to read passages like this, what we call apocalyptic literature, and, and to read it incorrectly. Daniel's apocalyptic passages, which are in the back half of, of his book, are really about the realities of exile in Babylon and Persia. Mark 13, as I said, is about the destruction of Jerusalem. The apocalyptic texts in the book of Revelation are about persecution of Christians under the Roman rule. None of these are meant to describe in vivid detail the end of the world. In the case of Mark 13, it's actually rooted in a historical event that we know that happened. The temple in Jerusalem, indeed the bulk of the city, was destroyed, utterly destroyed, in 70 AD at the hand of the Romans. The first century Jewish historian Josephus actually writes about this terrible siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, how people starved, how they, people had to eat their own children to stay alive, how there was this succession of self-proclaimed messiahs over and over again who came to violent ends, how there were Jews fighting one another in the street to the death over scraps of, of rotten food. More Jews were killed by Jews during this siege than they were by Romans. It was awful. It's a horrific scene that actually happened in Scripture, very much like Jesus said it was going to in Mark 13, which was 40 years before it happened. And what is Jesus' main message to his disciples in this passage about this time that's coming? Get out and run. <laughs> run away. Forget notions of national loyalty. Do not stick around for this appalling time. So on one level... We have Jesus speaking to his disciples about something that's going to happen in the future. And what does he say? He, he says, don't fear. But there's another fascinating layer here as well. Most scholars actually believe that the Gospel of Mark was written directly before or after the destruction of Jerusalem. So 69, 70, maybe 71 A.D. Not only was Mark writing from Galilee, maybe Syria, but... Most scholars believe that he was sending this gospel to uh, Jewish converts and, and Christians in Rome. If you remember Roman history from, co from college, if you took Roman history, 
69 and 70 were not a great time for Christians to be in Rome. <laughs> in the year 69 alone, there were four emperors in one year. Nero, Ortho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. All four of them were marked by violence and civil war. Uh, remember that Nero is, is one of the chief persecutors in, throughout all of the history of Christianity. There was a great fire that, that burned under his watch in Rome in 64, and even though every historical account basically says that he probably started it himself, he blamed Christians for it, had them rounded up and eaten by dogs. That's the kind of guy he was. It was Vespasian, the fourth of those emperors, who sent his son Titus to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. At exactly the same time, he timed it exactly that that would be sacked at the same time that he was receiving the crown as emperor. That was a, that was a, that was a sign, that was a symbol. And Titus destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He burned the temple to the ground. And it's believed that he crucified up to 10,000 Jews in the span of just a couple days. This is the atmosphere in which Mark is writing his gospel to people in Rome. To Jewish converts and Gentile Christians. How is somebody supposed to write in a time like that? What words do you use? That would sort of be like us kind of coldly talking about 2020 and 21 as, uh, you know, this, there was this kind of world event and it was a bad flu and some people died. I mean, words just don't do it justice, right? So what does Mark do? Like Daniel, like John will later in the book of Revelations, he turns to what we call apocalyptic language, that stuff, a dark sun, um, uh, the moon will be quenched, stars will begin to fall from the sky. This is vivid language to talk about the suffering that's going on in the world. So friends, Mark 13, not a prediction about the end of the world. Though many Christians in Rome in 64 and Jerusalem in 70 AD might have hoped that it was the end of the world rather than the reality that they faced. But what it was the end of was the temple. And many Jews and Christians had the temple at the center of their world. This was the end of that world. In many ways, this is a vindication of Jesus' ongoing presence, the presence of God in the world that he spoke of. That presence is no longer found in a building. It can't be anymore. That building's not there. So, instead, the presence of God is experienced through Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is why Jews still gather today to pray at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. It's the only section of the outer wall of the temple that remains. It was, the temple's never been rebuilt since 70 AD. This is all that remains. And they, they go here to pray. And really, their prayers are very similar to the one I had in my office this week. Come, Messiah. Come and make things all right, because they believe that the Messiah is going to come rebuild the temple and come as judge. The difference is that we believe the Messiah has already come and his presence is available to us. So Mark 13, not about the end of the world, but the end of the temple. So please be careful how you read and interpret this passage and many others like it. Jesus himself, his own words said, it's not for us to know the time or the place of his second coming. Everyone who is a, a, has been a self-proclaimed prophecy expert or had the key to understanding when the end times were, in com were going to come, they all have something in common. They've all been wrong so far. <laughs> And worse yet, many of them have done some serious damage. 
leading people to become disillusioned and disappointed when prophecies fall short and even lose confidence in biblical authority. So my encouragement is don't be enchanted with the notion of the end of the world because that's so often accompanied by fear and false confidence, the very opposite of what Jesus is preaching in this passage. But here is where I want to empathize with those who prophesy about the end times. Because in a biblical sense, they are like sort of correct. And, and my belief is that we are in the end times and we're always in the end times. The disciples thought they were in the end times at the ascension of Jesus. They're like, are you coming back now? Mark's audience thought they were in the end times in Rome in 70 AD. The latest biblical writers, John, Jude, they were convinced they were in the end times. Christians throughout the centuries have felt that they are in the end times, and in a sense, they're kind of all correct. In my estimation, what the New Testament communicates is that we're always in the end times between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. So that said, let's be reminded that Jesus spoke these words about the temple, not the end of the world, and Mark wrote these words to persecuted Christians in Rome, not to those at the end of the world. As my dear New Testament professor always says, remember that the Bible cannot mean now what it did not mean then. But that doesn't mean that this text isn't speaking to us today. Because there's a third layer. Jesus speaks with the disciples. Mark's speaking to his readers. But Jesus, through the Gospel of Mark, is speaking to us to us. There's a third circle there. Both Jesus and Mark are speaking to audiences that are disoriented and overwhelmed with the weight of suffering in the world, and they are in seismic changes with everything that is happening around them. Does that sound like any of us here today in 2021? I think so. I think so. So, three threads of wisdom I just want to pull out for us to close today. Ways in which this text is still speaking to us. The first is this. The church should be unafraid, alert, and centered on Jesus. This is Jesus' words to his disciples, who would experience suffering, all experience it differently, but they would all experience it. Stay alert. Watch out for false teachers who are peddling a false gospel. As my dear friend Simon says over and over, keep your witness sharp. Keep your testimony sharp. And maybe most poignantly, don't fear. Jesus says it in this passage. Don't fear. You're going to hear rumors of wars. You're going to see wars raging around you. Don't fear. Instead, stay centered on me. If we look throughout the history of the church over 2,000 years, I can put sort of churches in three different categories, Christians in three different categories. First of all, we have churches who are under persecution, right? Who are under persecution. Let me be clear. We are not a persecuted church here today uh, by those standards or really any other standards. I know there's a lot of chatter these days about religious liberty. I care a ton about that. But we are not a persecuted church. A persecuted church meets knowing full well that just by meeting together, they are putting their lives and livelihoods on the line. That's not us here today. The benefit that these churches have that we can so often miss is that they have to stay centered on Jesus or else they would never meet together, right? What would be the point if they're not centered on Jesus? 
That's their reason for gathering. They stay in this vitally relationship centered on Jesus. So that's one group. The other is the non-persecuted church who because of their comforts, they lose their centeredness on Jesus and have a muted or dulled witness to the world. These are the churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep who give in to the temptation to stagnate, to become cynical, to become apathetic to the suffering of the world and the mission of God's kingdom, uh, to forsake God-given biblical values and to live lives on Saturday night that are antithetical to their one precious hour on Sunday morning if they choose to show up at all. My friends, we are in suburban America. This is our temptation. This is our temptation. Thank goodness there's a third option, right? The third group is the non-persecuted church who actively chooses to stay centered on Jesus as if they were. This is what we're called to. Notice that Jesus in this text doesn't tell his disciples, run towards the persecution, stay in the city while it's being sieged. No, he says, get out of there. We do not run to persecution. But he also doesn't say, why don't you go find a nice villa in the, in the, in the hills somewhere and enjoy and let this whole thing blow over. We're not supposed to seek persecution or comfort, but we're supposed to move forward, stay alert, stay centered vitally on Jesus. That's the kind of church that we are called to be. That's the kind of church we have to be. If persecution comes, so be it. But we're going to practice staying centered on Jesus Christ right here and right now. Second thing from this text is Jesus will be vindicated. We talked about this last week, but the destruction of the temple is a vindication of Jesus because Rome was convinced that by destroying the temple, what were they doing? They were destroying the, the Jewish and Christian God by doing that right? They were, they were snuffing out the presence of God, but that could never and will never happen. Jesus' words are proven true, and his presence remains here even today as we're gathered here today. We should take comfort in the fact that Jesus and his movement of followers outlasted the Roman Empire, didn't he? And the Babylonians, and every other institution or government or power that has set their face against him. I can often feel burdened by the weight of institutions and governments and powers today who set their face against Jesus, who don't love him, who don't revere him, who can even mock him. I'm comforted that the gospel of Jesus has historically prevailed against systems of unfaithfulness and injustice and violence and arrogance, and I trust that Jesus will indeed be vindicated in our time as well. Last. The mission goes on and the mission goes out. The mission goes on and the mission goes out. The destruction of the temple was a watershed moment in Jewish history. But it is also extremely significant in Christian history because in many ways, this is when the church expands and explodes in growth. When the temple sacrificial system falls, so do all of those arguments that we read about in the book of Acts and in the epistles about the role of the institution of the temple and sacrifices. And the focus is less on preserving traditions and more on mission. This is when the church begins to reach out and branch out and expand across the world. They were decentralized with the loss of the temple, but this is where the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is unleashed throughout the world. The mission of God goes on and moves outward. We should too be reminded that even as we gather, we are, not sent, we are not a centralized come and see model of church. 
We are a place where we experience the presence of God and his call upon our lives and the fellowship that he calls us to. And then we take that presence of God into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our worlds. God's mission goes on and branches out. So my friends, let us not be fascinated by notions of the end of the world. Let us be much more fascinated by Jesus Christ who through his very presence guides us and leads us through whatever we want to call what we're in, end times, whatever we want to call this space between his first and second coming. Let's stay alert. Let's center our lives, uh, not on institutions, not on powers, but on Jesus himself. And let's not be afraid at the wars that are raging around us. Christ will be vindicated. Christ will be magnified for the world to see. And until that day, We stay unafraid, we stay alert, and we say, Maranatha, which means, come, Lord Jesus, and until you do, we will stay centered upon you because you are the very presence of God. Lord Jesus, would you teach us what it means to cry out and say, come, come among us? Might it lead to a fascination of who you are May we be less fascinated by the signs of this time as we are your presence in the midst of them. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your ongoing presence in our lives, that even through the suffering of this world, which is so hard to make sense of, that you are with us, that your mission goes on, your mission goes out. It is our desire, Lord, that as nations come and rise and fall, that you are magnified, you are glorified as the very presence of God.